Blog Talk Radio. You've just tuned in to Parkinson's Recovery. This is Robert Rogers, and I have two very special guests today with me. First, uh, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jay Alberts, who is a, a Ph.D. researcher uh, with the Center for Neurological Restoration at the Cleveland Clinic at Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Alberts about his research and about all the kinds of exciting things he's discovering with regard to what people with Parkinson's uh, can do to get great relief from their symptoms. And then we're going to be uh, talking, uh, in addition to our discussions with uh, Dr. Alberts, uh, Scott Lucart. And uh, I just want to say, before I tell you the whole story, the discussion with Scott is going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about a race that Scott's going to be doing across the entire country. So first, I want to uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Alberts, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Tell us, if you could, some about all of the incredible research that you have been doing on Parkinson's. Well, we have a number of studies going on at the moment, but I think uh, what we probably want to talk about mostly today, we, we're doing some work with deep brain stimulation, but we're also doing a fair amount of work with uh, exercise, uh, specifically a form of exercise or a mode of exercise called forced exercise. Um, so let me give you the story or, or some of the background here. In 2003, I rode a tandem bicycle across the state of Iowa with a Parkinson's patient named Kathy Frazier from Atlanta. And she made a statement after we rode that week. She said, you know, for this week, it didn't feel like I had Parkinson's. So we were really encouraged by that. And um, we, we sort of started thinking about what might be happening here with Parkinson's and exercise. And so we followed that up. In 2005, I rode a tandem bike, again, across the state of Iowa, or, well, with various patients, but one in particular, uh, one day, a gentleman named Dr. Dave Heydrich, and he has deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's. And he turned his stimulators off that day uh, that we did a 50-mile ride, and about 15 miles into the ride, we were stopping to have a donut because uh, you need to fuel up as you pedal across Iowa. And uh, he looked at me and he said, where did my tremor go? And I said, I don't know. Let's just hop back on the bike and see if we can keep it away. So it turns out uh, about four hours later, um, he was still essentially asymptomatic uh, following this uh, tandem bike riding. So... It was after that that we realized that we really needed to follow this up and do some do some more systematic study, and that's when we recently uh, conducted a preliminary uh, clinical trial to look at the effects or to compare the effects of voluntary exercise to what we're calling forced exercise. So, so forced exercise is essentially, from a conceptual standpoint, it is uh, is assisting or forcing the Parkinson's patient to pedal faster than they can on their own. So one of the things with Parkinson's disease is that uh, patients have this poverty of movement or slowness of movement. And essentially, these patients that I was riding tandem bicycle with could typically only pedal about 50 to 55 RPMs or revolutions per minute. Now, when they rode the tandem with me, I tended to pedal 80 to 90, or around 85 RPMs. So the idea was that maybe we're forcing, or maybe we're overdriving to some degree their central nervous system, and that is changing brain function that allows them to have a better uh, imp- or greater improvements in their motor function. So, so we have since followed this these uh, in the field observations up. And with this preliminary clinical trial, and uh, our data are very encouraging here with respect to the the, uh, the positive effects of forced exercise on motor function compared to voluntary exercise. When you then say uh, forced exercise, and, uh, and the bike then is a is a tandem bike where there's one person in the front and one person in the back. That's correct. And for the, uh, you know, obviously the ride across Iowa, we used a, a real 
uh, or we, we were on the road for this um, uh, bike or bike ride. But in the laboratory, we use we did use a real tandem bike, but we used uh, in a stationary setup. So we had uh, so it was a little safer than bringing uh, patients out through the streets of Cleveland. Um, but yes, so we had a, a, a healthy uh, young adult trainer, and that individual was typically on the front of the tandem, while the patient was on the back, and that trainer controlled the rate of pedaling. Um, and made, made sure that we were pedaling or that the Parkinson's patient continued to pedal between 80 to 90 RPMs. For a period of 30 minutes or Yeah, so or? actually what we did is three times a week, and essentially it was 40 minutes uh, per session. There was a little bit of a warm-up period before the, uh, exercise, the main exercise set and then a little bit of a cool-down period uh, following the exercise. So, so in sum, they were probably in the lab around an hour, uh, three times per week. And this was an eight-week intervention. So we were, we were really pleased, actually, with the, with the clinical outcomes. Um, many of your listeners may be familiar with something called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. This is a clinical scale that estimates uh, motor function or, or um, symptoms of Parkinson's. And what we found after eight weeks of forced exercise, Parkinson's patients experienced about a 35% decrease in their clinical scores. Whoa, and, yeah, that's amazing. Is, yeah, so if you look at the data, that's uh, equivalent to what you see in some studies looking at unilateral and even bilateral uh, deep brain stimulation. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. So the design was to administer the Unified Disease Parkinson's uh, rating scale uh, before people began and then also to administer it at the end? Exactly. And, and then you saw the difference of that, a huge, huge, a, I want to tell everybody that's a huge shift in uh, that particular scale. Uh, in fact, have you seen any other interventions that have uh, yielded that kind of result? We haven't seen any other behavioral interventions such as exercise or physical therapy that have that large of an effect. Obviously, there are surgical inter interventions that do have um, uh, that large of an effect, but um, I would contend that uh, our intervention isn't quite as invasive as brain surgery. <laughs> Yeah, the other encouraging aspect of this, to, again, to us, is that if you think about this type of intervention, what's happening? You're exercising your lower extremities. But we were observing in, in the field observations, you know, that in 2003 when I rode the bike across Iowa with Kathy, she wrote out a birthday card. And she, I looked at this card and I said, wow, who wrote this? And she said, she did. And as you and many of your listeners know, one of the things that happens with Parkinson's is you experience micrographia. So your handwriting becomes small and typically uh, a bit illegible. Well, Kathy had written this card, and it looked absolutely wonderful. And uh, we were both surprised at uh, the improvement in her handwriting. So now let's step back. We're, we're exercising the lower extremities, but we're seeing an improvement in upper extremity function. So to us, that was pointing to some kind of a change in the brain or central nervous system function because we weren't making her arms or hands stronger or anything like that. Rather, we were potentially or most likely changing brain function. And we saw similar things. So we did, we did assess upper extremity function in our recent study as well. And, uh, and the biomechanical measures used to assess function uh, were consistent with those earlier in the field observations. Oh, those are amazing results. When you were riding the bike with Kathy in Iowa, uh, w did you have the expectation that there would be improvement in her symptoms? Was that just something you did and it was a fluke? It was almost an accident to discover that was the result. Yeah, I would say it was uh, pretty much a fluke. Uh, the reason we went to Iowa to ride was really, I had, I had recently, uh, a good friend of mine in Iowa had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and uh, sort of despite my best efforts, I couldn't convince him that it wasn't a, a sort of a death sentence. And so I said, you know what, we need to go around to these smaller towns in, in these Midwestern cities and, you know, just show them that, hey, here's a Parkinson's patient who's out. She's 
you know, riding a tandem bike. She's doing things. So it's not a death sentence. And it turned out that, you know, that mission, I think, was accomplished. We we spoke to a number of people, and she was very encouraging throughout the week. But this other bonus uh, came along, and that was her improvement in motor function. What a wonderful serendipity. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what a delightful surprise. You've indicated that the uh, the reason that people should uh, begin to get interested in uh, forced exercise on a tandem bike is that uh, it specifically uh, helps a number of different symptoms. Does it help all symptoms? Uh, you mentioned handwriting uh, is improved, and clearly a lot of the motor symptoms, the sure. uh, the scale improves. But uh, can a person that has any symptoms see that they'll be able to perhaps get some relief? Yeah, we saw a, a general relief of symptoms. Now, ironically enough, uh, on the UPDRS, the the items that showed the smallest change were actually gait and postural stability. Um, now, it's important to note the UPDRS, you know, in terms of assessing gait and postural stability, isn't a real precise tool. Uh, so we are following those uh, measures up with more precise biomechanical measures. Uh, to look and see if maybe we have potentially um, changed uh, lower extremity function as well. But in general, we actually found that that tremor was quite responsive to um, forced exercise, uh, as well as uh, akinesia and bradykinesia. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. Now, are there other forms of forced exercise other than tandem bike, biking that are possible for people? Well, there is. A, you, it's similar, somewhat similar, is uh, treadmill training or treadmill walking and uh, putting the treadmill at sort of a higher pace or a faster pace than you can achieve on your own. And actually, that's where the concept or the term forced exercise came from. But in the animal literature, there were... Um, uh, rat models with Parkinson's, and they put them on a, uh, a treadmill that had an electric grid on the back, and the animal had to maintain uh, the, the speed of the treadmill, otherwise they would risk getting shocked. Uh, so, so there are some human applications of treadmill training. Uh, the one of the one difficult thing, obviously, is that you know you have the safety issue there. You can't put the treadmill up 30% faster than you normally can walk and still be safe. Uh, so that's why there are some people, um, clinics right now doing work that look at treadmill training and they use either a body weight supported system, so part of your body weight is supported, or some type of overhead harness system to keep the patient safe. Uh, we, we selected the tandem bike just to replicate what we found in the field. And as we started doing it, 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 again, to us, it started to make more sense because, you know, the lower portion or the distal segment of your limb is fixed to the pedal. Um, so it, it's, it's a little safer than being on a treadmill that you're trying to increase by about 30%. In your design, three times a week, 40 minutes a time, what if people say, but I don't have enough time to uh, uh, be able to get on a bike and convince my uh, my spouse or my caretaker or my helper to be able to help me do this three times a week for 40 minutes? What if they can only do it once a week for 40 minutes? Would that really uh, be of benefit to them? Well, I, we don't really know the dose yet. That's why, you know, we're really, I think, we're scratching the surface here with respect to uh, what what is the proper dose. What's the proper rate? You know, we used 80 to 90 only because that's what I used in Iowa. Maybe it's a percentage over their voluntary rate. Maybe it's 10%, 20%, 30%. We don't really know. So, you know, that's something that we will be looking at or we hope to look at in the future. But I will tell you, you know, your first comment about, well, is this something I have time to do? Well, we had, uh, of the patients who came in, I think there were only two sessions over the course of the eight-week training period that were missed. And, you know, because patients, once they started to appreciate or start to feel some of the benefits, they never wanted to miss. And, in fact, this was the first time in my research career that we really did not have a difficult time recruiting subjects. And after they finished the study, they all wanted to re-enroll, which obviously we couldn't enroll them again. But 
they uh, they were looking for something else to do after this. Oh, that's amazing. How many subjects did you run on that study? Uh, we did a total of 10, five in the voluntary group, five in the uh, forest exercise group. And, you know, and I will say that, you know, I'm not proposing necessarily that people go out and buy a tandem bicycle and, and ride it with their you know, son or daughter, caretaker, spouse, or whatever. Um, you know, because there are safety issues in mind that one has to keep in mind. So we are currently working with a group to develop a motor-driven cycle that will sort of act as the the, the healthy trainer did during the, the application of forest exercise. So you wouldn't have to have a person who would do it for you every time. Exactly right. This was really just a proof of principle or a proof of concept study to show that it's not just aerobic exercise, or it may not just be aerobic exercise, but it may be the rate at which you exercise that is a critical factor in terms of leading to a global improvement in motor function. Uh, this is quite amazing. It, it's it's really revolutionary work. It's cutting-edge work. Let me uh, ask you a, a very specific question about the comparison of the huge effect that you found in this particular study of uh, of 35% or so improvement versus the uh, the type of improvement that the typical studies of uh, the prescription medications show. Uh, my view of the comparison is that you're getting a huge effect relative to what most of the studies of prescription medications uh, show. Is is that right from your perspective? Yeah, you know, the uh, the data are sort of uh, out there or, or sort of all, the, all over the board depending on what study you look at with respect to the uh, efficacy or the treatment effects that you get with medication. But I would certainly say we are uh, um, we you know, don't have to take a back seat to the effects of uh, of medication. And, and we're very, you know, and in fact, very close to some of the effects that you see with deep brain stimulation. Oh, my goodness. That's so, amazing. You know, another thing that we noted during the study was that, you know, initially, and this goes to your, to your earlier question about, in some ways, compliance, and uh, we noticed that patients, when they first started or first enrolled, they said, well, I want to exercise in the afternoon because, you know, I've got other things to do. I've got my life things to do in the morning and, and such. So this was sort of an add-on to their day. But then after a couple of weeks, they started to feel the benefits and the positive effects. And so almost all of them said, you know, is there any way we could move my exercise uh, schedule or time to the morning because it sort of energized them for the rest of the day? Interesting. Yeah. So, so I don't one know of the exactly reasons. what's happening there, but oh, there's so many factors to uh, consider. So, you have future studies that are planned. What's up for That's the future? That's correct. Uh, well, what we're doing now, in collaboration with uh, some of my colleagues here at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Doctors Phillips and Lowe, we are looking at what are the specific changes in brain function, and we're using uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, essentially measuring. Uh, blood flow changes in the brain, and uh, we're looking to see how does forced exercise change blood flow and patterns of activity relative to the administration of medication. And at the moment, our preliminary data look very favorable in the sense that it appears exercise or forced exercise is having a very similar effect on brain function as the administration of L-DOPA. Oh my! Um, so, yes. do these studies look like a person then is uh, is on the forced exercise routine on the bike, and then there are a bunch of uh, of uh, electrodes or or connectors on their head? Yeah, or, no, not at all. These studies are uh, very much like if you went to your local health club and hopped on a, a stationary bike. Except in this study, there it was a tandem bike. You know, it was very non-invasive. We didn't do any. Um, measurement of uh of any uh, like EEG or EMG electromyography or anything like that we just uh had them exercise you know how they would in a health club in many ways 
And then how did you um, uh, assess the, the brain function change? Oh, we assessed the brain. Okay, yes, through the uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, essentially MRI. Oh, oh, in other words, after they finished. Yes, exactly. Oh, I see. Yes. And, you, yes. and you compared that to people on drugs to see the difference. Exactly right. after on drugs. And exactly. so basically you're seeing uh, a similar effect. A very similar response in terms of what are the effects or how does forced exercise uh, affect brain function. Uh, relative to the administration of drugs. Oh, that's amazing! It's yeah, almost so. so if if uh, as you continue this and it looks like that's verified, it's as if a per- person would have a choice. They can either go the the medication route or they can go the exercise route. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out. But we are looking at um, at you know other studies to see can we potentially slow the progression of Parkinson's through you know if we're changing brain function then we have this op- a unique opportunity in our view to possibly intervene and either slow the progression or um, slow the progression and improve motor functioning. So that's those are some of the studies, one of the studies that we're, we're trying to uh, get off the ground right now. Uh, we're also trying to look at what are the neuroprotective effects of forced exercise. And by neuroprotection I mean can it delay the time in which Parkinson's patients may have to start the treatment with meds, or start their treatment of med with meds. So we're we're hoping to enroll patients who are just newly diagnosed but have yet to go on any medication, and see if we can pu- sort of push them out a bit further. You know, delay the onset of them having to take medication for the treatment of Parkinson's. So uh, from your uh, work exercise obviously makes a huge difference. If a person is uh, not in a position to do tandem biking, uh, would you have any other specific exercises you would recommend for people who have the symptoms of uh, Parkinson's? For example, walking, swimming. Is there anything in particular that, from your experience and uh, research, shows would really make a big difference? Sure. Well, we haven't done any other research studies related to different modes of exercise, and I'm sure you know I'm not. Uh, here to say that cycling or or, uh, stationary cycling is the only way you can make these improvements. Um, We have a lot of patients who feel a lot better after swimming. Um, I would recommend, obviously, before you start any program, you need to get the clearance of your uh, cardiologist and your movement disorders neurologist. But if patients could, um, say, go to their gym or go to their, their home on a stationary bike and if they can find find a cadence or a pedaling rate that they can achieve comfortably and then try to increase that pedaling rate by 10 or 20%. So they'll have to turn the resistance down, increase the pedaling rate by you know, 10 to 20%, and try to maintain that for a given period of time. Um, you know, that may be one way to... to somewhat replicate the effects that we're getting here. But again, this is very early and you know, we we need a lot more study here with respect to what's the proper dose, who are the best patients to uh use this intervention with and you know, how how long do these effects last? Overall, your results suggest that there is incredible hope for a person who is diagnosed with Parkinson's. Yes, I would agree. I think there is certainly hope. And, and, you know, one of the things that the patients mentioned to us was they really enjoyed the intervention. I mean, not because, you know, we're nice people here, but we are nice people. But um, <laughs> but what it really, it changed them in the sense that many of them who were obviously were on medication, they are essentially a passive recipient in terms of how well does the medication work. And that's they have very little control over that. It's either working well today or it's not working well. Patients with deep brain stimulation, though they weren't in the study, they say the same thing. You know, their function is dependent on something else, how well the stimulation is working or how well their meds are working. Many of the patients here, all the patients in fact, said they really felt that now, with this type of intervention, they were an active participant in the treatment and fight against the disease. So, you know, that was sort of a, a secondary benefit or, or something uh, 
maybe a, a warm and fuzzy feeling that we had here that we were sort of empowering these individuals to to really treat or to fight the disease uh, on their own in That's addition to, to medication. What else would you like people to know about your work at the Cleveland Clinic? Well, we think it's um, you know, fairly novel and innovative and uh, you know, we're encouraged by these results. You know, we would encourage folks to, obviously, before they start a program, check with their, their movement disorders neurologist and uh, cardiologist or general physician to get clearance. Um, and, you know, we're obviously always looking for more patients to participate in these studies. Uh, we have a couple studies going on now, and those are more long-term studies, so 8- to 12-week uh, intervention studies. So if you're in the Cleveland area, and you're willing to travel to the clinic, we would uh, welcome you. Um, and then the other is just probably to get the word out and you know, let people know that uh, these studies are going on and, and that they really can be an active participant in their, in their disease. Now, to do all of this work clearly uh, costs quite a bit of money, and uh, there are ways that people can actually make uh, direct contributions to the clinic. How would they go about doing that? Sure. Well, your other guest, uh, Scott Lucart, he has uh, decided to do this uh, little bike ride, if you will, the race across America, and he has selected um, our lab to uh, be a recipient of uh, the donations that he receives uh, for doing this ra race. Uh, so that's one way, and Scott's website is www.scottsbigride.com. Uh, uh, Dot com and there's a link on his site uh, that uh, can direct you to give uh, direct your donations to our to our group you know I will say that it does cost a lot of money to do this work and you know this very first study we had we didn't have any funding for it I essentially funded it out of my own pocket and uh, built the tandem bike the special sort of uh, you know, equipment that we needed. Uh, much of that was sort of hatched in my basement or in my garage. Uh, so it uh, it does take uh, funds to do these studies, and, and any and all uh, donations of any of any size are greatly appreciated. You are a true pioneer, Jay. This is really well, amazing we'll see. work. This is amazing work. Well, uh, that's a good entree to uh, uh, introduce our second guest, Scott Lucard, who is here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Thank you for having me. This is an incredible feat that you are about to undertake. Could you explain to people what the Race Across America is all about? Well, I think it goes back a little bit to uh, my twin brother, Mark, and, and our story. Uh, I'm a businessman, and he's a businessman, and we're 46 years old. And uh, he, he started about oh, six or seven years ago riding a, a road bike, and uh, he became quite involved in it. And about four or four to five years ago, um, I asked him one day, can I, can I borrow your bike and go for a ride? And I instantly became uh, almost uh, addicted to uh, the feeling of being on the road and physical fitness. And one thing led to another that uh, it, I, I started riding more and more. And uh, Mark and I um, participated in a couple competitive events together, 12-hour uh, races and 24-hour races. And... Uh, um, had a little bit of success doing that in, in 2005, and um, I remember sitting at my office one day, and Mark sent me an email, and it said, here's a ride that, that you ought to do. And uh, I am a little bit more competitive on the bike than, than Mark is, perhaps, and uh, he had sent me a link to a ride that was a ride across the United States of America, starting in San Diego, California, and ending in Savannah, Georgia. And I looked at it, and I thought, well, that looks really interesting, and I, re I responded back to him, that would be great, why don't we do it together? And so we started training in early, probably January and February of, of 2007 for this ride that was going to take place in June. And it wasn't long until it became quite obvious that there was something wrong with, with Mark physically. Uh, there was no visible symptoms at, at that point, but when he would train, it was like he, he didn't recover very well, and he couldn't train hard the next day. And um, 
we didn't really know what the issue was, but uh, Mark wasn't able to go on that ride, uh, of which I did continue on and, and crossed the United States in 17 days from San Diego to Savannah. Uh, we rode about 170 miles a day. And one of the, I guess, perks for completing this ride was that you qualified for something called Race Across America. And so I completed the ride. Mark supported me through morning emails and, and communication all the way across the country. And um, upon completing the ride, I, I had no intention whatsoever of doing Race Across America until uh, about, I guess, about a year ago this time, uh, about you know March to April of 2008, um, Mark's symptoms had become more pronounced, and he began to have uh, a slowness in his left hand and his left arm um, and began to have um, shaking or, or tremors and uh, upon you know seeing a neurologist was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and it was a little bit of shock both of us uh, were in excellent physical condition and, and good health and, and blessed with good genetics and uh, so it took us back a little bit and it made me realize that uh, my brother, who is, is arguably my best friend and has always been my best friend, uh, was to a point where he was no longer going to be able to compete physically. And I wanted to do something very memorable with him that we could look back and, and recall and have the memories and the time we shared together which was what the ride in 2007 across the country was designed to be, just a time for us to spend time together as, as brothers. And so uh, I went and I approached Mark and I said, Mark, if I decide to do Race Across America, will you be my crew chief? And, of course, he said yes, and that was uh, last June. And since that point, we have been preparing for this race. Um, race Across America is arguably the – most difficult race in the world. Um, it is a bicycle race starting in Oceanside, California, which is just north of San Diego, uh, covering 3,021 miles, ending up in Annapolis, Maryland. And um, the solo division, there's only one rider. I'll be doing all the riding. And you have to com complete the trip in 12 days. And the clock starts when you leave Oceanside, which will be on June 17th, and 12 days later, you have to be at the pier in Ocean or in Annapolis to be an official finisher. Um, and so we have been preparing for that, and uh, there's lots of preparations that go into it. Do you race in groups, or do you wind up racing sometimes all by yourself? Uh, you must ride by yourself. Uh, there is no drafting, so you cannot ride in a in a group of bikes and benefit from the aerodynamics of other riders. Uh, we start off, there will be about 30 individual participants, and then there will be another 200 to 250 participants in either two-man or four-man or eight-man teams. But the solo riders uh, will start off two minutes apart, uh, you know, from Oceanside, and there's there's no drafting required, and you must be totally self-sufficient, uh, you and your crew. You must have everything with you when it comes to, to food and mechanical parts, uh, clothing, hydration, everything that must be um, self-contained. So you're not exactly staying at Marriott Hotels on the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, this will not be the uh, the tour across, across the country. Uh, there will be a crew of eight people, of which Mark is the crew chief. Uh, the crew of eight people will be broken up uh, to support me, and they will be in three different vehicles. We will have a, a follow van that will ride behind me uh, virtually all the time, all the time after dark, and the majority of the time during the daylight hours. Um, and then there will be another van that will, uh, a crew of three will work in the van and work 12-hour shifts and then they will get in another van, and they will go to a hotel to get a few hours sleep while they're off duty and then come back on duty every 12 hours. And then there will be a, a, a small motorhome 
that will travel along, and that will essentially be my hotel and and my shower bed, things like that. So um, to to be, have an official finish, I have to ride a minimum of 252 miles per day, uh, and our, our goal is to, to ride more than that. But uh, I will need to be spending probably around 20 hours a day on the bike, which means it'll be a short time to get off the bike, um, you know, use the motorhome facilities, uh, and get back up and, and back on the bike. Oh, my heavens. What a challenge. What an absolute challenge. So you're basically going to be riding the whole time, with except for just a few hours every day of rest. Yes. That'll, that, it's a, I guess that's why Mark and I really wanted to do this, because I wanted it to be something memorable. Uh, and it was fine as a bike ride, but what really made this an interesting story was um, uh, it was last summer, late last summer, and my brother uh, found out about um, a news clip of, of Dr. Jay Alberts' work at the, at the Cleveland Clinic uh, that was on Brian Williams' uh, NBC News program about the benefits of tandem cycling and um, for Parkinson's patients. So we got connected with, with, with Dr. Alberts, and all of a sudden we realized this was the charity that we wanted to support, and our goal is, you know, not to not to win the race. Our goal is to officially complete the race within the allotted 12 days, but we really want to bring awareness and we want to raise money for this Parkinson's research that we feel could help patients, you know, around the world and could add quality of life to, to so many people that suffer from Parkinson's, of which, you know, Mark is, is very fortunate. He has a, he has a great attitude. Um, he has the symptoms or some of the symptoms that Parkinson's patients have, but he's, he's still able to lead an active lifestyle at this point. And anything we could do to uh, further research that might be able to have Parkinson's patients around the world have a better quality of life, that is our, our real mission um, for this race. As you go across the country, then, uh, people who live en route will be able to come out and cheer you on. Exactly. And if, How will they know when you're going to be there? Well, raceacrossamerica.org .org is a website uh, where you can see the map of exactly uh, where we will be going through, um, and there will be updates on that map uh, probably every two to three hours. Um, you can also go to my personal website, www.scottsbigride.com, and you'll be able to track us on there as far as exactly our progress and how we're doing as we as we cross the country. And will uh, you be marked in some way with the name Scott, or uh, will will on your bike will people be able to know that it's you? They will very easily be able to know it's us. Uh, in fact, on my website, you'll see pictures of my van that is uh, already, you know, logoed up with, you know, pedaling for Parkinson's and, and research at the Cleveland Clinic, as well as, you know, Team Scott Lucart, uh, and our jerseys will reflect that as well. But, yes, it will be very easy to, to know uh, who we are. What are you doing to prepare for this incredible physical feat? Well, it's it's been a busy time. Uh, I officially started with my coach on on November first. Uh, since that time, I've ridden about ten to eleven thousand miles, uh, riding long distances. I've ridden training rides as long as you know four hundred and twenty to four hundred and thirty miles. Uh, we're now in the process of simulating Ram days. So, for instance, last weekend on Friday, I rode two hundred and seventy-five miles got back up on Saturday and rode 275 again. Um, and then here, within the next couple of weeks, we'll do a three-day simulation and then finally a four-day simulation to actually, you know, get my, my body and my mind used to um, what it's going to go through um, on Race Across America. And where do you live? I live in northeastern Ohio, uh, of which is not the most uh, conducive climate for for cycling so uh we have had to to go south to train uh, i've spent quite a bit of time in tucson arizona training this winter uh, we've trained in north and south carolina we've trained in 
Virginia, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, um, wherever we can find good weather on the weekends to, to train. Oh, this is amazing. What's the most difficult uh, 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 stretch that you're going to have to go through over the Rocky Mountains or Appalachia, or what do you see as being the most challenging uh, uh, block of uh, uh, time? That's a that's a really good question. So much of this, of course, will be weather dependent. But of course, coming uh, out of San Diego over the mountains, we will drop into the California desert in in Blythe. Uh, come come right near the Salton Sea. Uh, come across Arizona in June. Uh, so the heat of the desert um, could be, you know, 105 to 110 degrees. Um, then there's is the climbing of the Rockies, where we will go clear up to about 10,500 to 11,000 feet as we go through Durango um, and, and head east. That can be difficult at times there from a respiratory standpoint uh, as your lungs try to transition from the heat of the desert at 110 degrees to possibly nighttime riding of 40 to 50 degrees in those higher elevations of, of Colorado. Uh, but many riders that have ridden it in the past say the toughest parts can be in Kansas where the winds can, they could be favorable or they could be extremely unfavorable. Uh, and so Kansas and the flatlands, might have their own challenges. Uh, and then, of course, as we come further east, uh, we come through southern Ohio uh, and into West Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland. Um, we have to climb the Appalachian Mountains, which are significantly steeper than the Rockies. Not nearly as high, but significantly steeper. And, of course, at that point, uh, the legs are already going to have 2,500 miles in them. So, uh, to be honest, I don't know uh, whether it's going to be the heat, whether it's going to be the Rockies, the winds in Kansas, or the steep mountains of, of Appalachia. Um, we'll just have to wait and wait and see. Talk about some formidable challenges ahead. <laughs> so uh, there may be some days of this uh, short uh, period of time that you've got to do this race when you're not going to be able to meet your minimum if you're going to have to go up huge mountains and uh, if the weather gets particularly onerous. But the idea is, on average, you've got to be there at uh, a very specific time in order to be able to finish. Exactly. They actually have three cutoff points uh, across the country. Uh, the first cutoff is at Taos, New Mexico, which is about uh, 1,040 miles into the ride from, from Oceanside. And you have to be there in four days. You have to be to the Mississippi River in eight and then into Annapolis in 12. So, oh, yeah. and if you're, not, if you're not there, you're out of the race? Exactly. Yeah, if you wow. don't meet each of those individual cutoffs, um, you, are, you are out of the race. Uh, so it will be important for us to uh, get some miles in the bank to get ahead because there could be days where the weather is extremely difficult or the terrain is difficult. Uh, so we'll very much want to get, um, you know, ideally the first day we would want to ride close to 350 to 400 miles the first day um, to get a little bit of ahead of schedule. Right. Do you know some of the other competitors? Yes, many of the other competitors are incredible riders that have done it numerous times. Uh, the majority of riders come from outside the United States. This is truly an international race, um, and we will have uh, racers from uh, many from, from Europe, uh, some from Canada, uh, places like Slovenia will bring a an incredible group of riders um, that um, are amateurs in in status, but are compensated in a way that they basically can train full time. Um, and so, so a couple, some of these riders I, I have met, but many of them are international figures uh, that have set records uh, around the world. Uh, and the winning rider could very well make it in, in nine days. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, the, record, the record crossing was done a number of years ago, uh, and, that, and that rider, who was an American, uh, spent a total of 14 hours off the bike uh, in his entire crossing from California to, to the East Coast. Oh, heavens. Uh, so uh, a little bit beyond my abilities. 
people can uh, make contributions, and when they do that, they can go to your website, and those contributions go to uh, the work at the Cleveland Clinic uh, that Jay Alberts has just uh, been uh, describing to us. Uh, how does that exactly work? Do, does somebody make a block contribution? Or are they are they contributing for each mile, or what's the deal on that? You know, we have seen a variety of things. Uh, we have seen, you know, block gifts. Um, we have seen people contributing. Um, you know, based on miles. Uh, an interesting concept that I saw the other day was um, a person was making uh, a block gift and then was making an additional gift for every hour that I finished prior to the 12-day. I'm <laughs> uh, talking about an incentive. <laughs> so you know, if you come in a day early, if you come in 11 days, there was 24 additional hours of additional gifts were made that way. Uh, so we've seen it, uh, you know, across the board and uh, a variety of different things, different businesses that we've heard are, are actually doing raffles where they're looking and, and trying to um, guess how long my crossing will take. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> lots of different things that are available out there. Uh, and it's, it's really something that we're desiring to spread the awareness of Parkinson's disease and especially its effect on on young people, um, and hopefully we can do something that, that will improve their, their quality of life um, as we go forward. And it's just great having uh, – I remember Jay saying to me, you know, one of the first times I met him, he says, Parkinson's disease is not a death sentence. And if we, can't get, if we can get one thing across is that even if you are diagnosed with Parkinson's, it doesn't have to mean that you can't live – um, a high-quality life. It doesn't mean that you can't be active. Uh, and some of the things that is, is most beneficial for Mark is is being active and, and having a goal to focus on. And that's one thing that this race has done is we are so focused on the, the uh, logistical preparations of it as well as the actual event that's coming up here on, on June 17th. Well, it's very clear that uh, you are totally jazzed and excited about the work uh, that Dr. Alberts has been doing at the clinic and want to see more of that actually uh, underway soon. Yes, I think we all would love to, to see um, a way that we could treat this disease um, possibly you know, without medication or without surgery. Not that those aren't, aren't ways of treatment that are, have obviously been very beneficial, but um, you know, the less that we can put into our bodies, if, if we can do this in a natural way through exercise, um, and something that really, you know, as, as Jay had mentioned, 40 minutes a week, uh, 40 minutes a day, three times a week, um, that doesn't take that much time out of uh, one schedule to where they could still lead a, a good quality life, could still, you know, pursue a career, could still be involved with their family um, and see these benefits. And I guess I'm so excited about it because, I can see the benefit for Mark as he rides his tandem, of which we will do tonight, uh, and he, I see the benefits of that in him um, by being able to be out there and, and, and ride and, and the benefits of exercise for him. So you're actually doing the tandem with him now? Yeah, I actually don't ride tandem with him. He rides with his brother, uh, but uh, we have ridden tandem together, and that's a whole lot of fun. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he rides tandem with his with his wife, and... Uh, but we ride together with, with my wife, and uh, we ride as a family quite frequently. So as I understand it, you found out about uh, Jay's work at the clinic from a newspaper article, and uh, that led you to do some additional investigations on what he was actually doing. Is that understanding right? Well, it was actually through a, a television piece through NBC News, uh, and Jay can tell you more as far as exactly the, the date of that, that uh, it was on Brian... Williams, uh, NBC News, that he had a, uh, a piece on Dr. Alberts' work and actually showing the benefits uh, to these patients who were part of this study. Um, and once we saw it, it just we were int so intrigued. And uh, that's when uh, we reached out to, to Dr. Alberts and, and got to know him and, and his work and uh, are so impressed with what's going on there and feel like this is cutting-edge uh, you know, research that could really transform uh, so many people's lives uh, around the world. 
that's my reaction to it's revolutionary work it's uh looking outside the box it's uh it's really quite remarkable <laughs> i can't tell you how impressed i am with with the work that's actually being done now when people make contributions they can specifically do that by going to your website and could you remind people what that website is again uh the website to go to is um www.scottsbigride.com and on there you can see a link right to the Learner Research Institute and can and gifts can, will go directly 100% of all the money raised for this ride will go for research uh no money will go to cover our expenses uh we were going to to do this race uh, no matter what and so those expenses for for us and our travel and our crew crossing the country uh, are all paid paid for uh, personally. And so every dollar that we raise, 100% will go to Dr. Alberts's research um, at the Cleveland Clinic. So this probably would be then tax deductible for people? Yes, it would be. And then on their website, is there a mechanism? Do people pledge or do they actually uh, make contributions now? You can actually make contributions now. Uh, we will keep this website open uh, right through the race, of course, in June, uh, and it will actually be open, I believe, into August. So we can be tracking you as the race unfolds, and the kickoff date is when again? We will leave San Diego, uh, Oceanside on June 17th, and uh, on the website you can get uh, current updates. Uh, there, you can also follow me on Twitter and on Facebook for those who – want to get updates uh, along the way um, those will be be very frequent and our and our website will pr is providing updates on training and links and pictures and things like that uh, at this point so you can really have a feel for for what goes into this race oh that's wonderful so the uh, so some of your uh, crew is going to be uh, putting in Twitter entries so that they'll know exactly what's going on and where you are and what the issues are exactly yeah that's been part of the uh, the challenge for this is to Get us middle-aged folks up to date with with you know young folks technology. <laughs> That's right. People can uh, follow, and we have had excellent response uh, to people that are just you know wanting to know how the progress is going. And uh, so yes, that will be available through Twitter, through Facebook, as well as through the website, where there will be updates multiple times each day. For those of you that have not heard about Twitter, this is a, a sort of a social networking system. You can sign up for free if you go to Twitter, T-W-I-T-T-E-R dot com. Uh, you simply enter some basic information and you set up an account for yourself and you'll be able to uh, follow Scott's ride across America uh, and uh, get entries uh, every time they put one in to see where he's at and what he's doing. So if you want to uh, come out and give him some support as he's going through, uh, a good way to do that would be to just follow him on Twitter. It's an amazing uh, uh, system for being able to know what's going on in the moment. It's a real-time kind of a networking system. Yes. So people are going to know where you are. Exactly. And, you know, if, if uh, um, you know, you want to follow me along the way, I'll get an email and know that you're following, and you will automatically get, um, you know, text and email updates uh, as far as our progress goes. So it really will make a difference to you because you're going to obviously going to begin to get pooped here as you go into day five, day six, day seven of this race. It'll be really make a difference to you to know that people are following you and they're there to support your race. You're exactly right. Uh, one of the toughest parts of this race is the mental aspect of it. Of, of like you say, you get tired physically and you get tired mentally, and the encouraging words that people share, uh, you know, through Twitter and through Facebook. Uh, emails that are sent to us that can be sent right right to our website uh, really mean a lot when you're out there on the road and it's cold or it's hot and it's dark and um, and it's it is incredible uh, the support that we have received already and what we look forward to in June. Yes, so I want to remind people. You've already said this a couple of times, but you're not just uh, writing in the sunny days. You're writing uh, throughout this period of time. You're writing at night. You're writing in the rain. You're writing in all weather conditions. It's a, a true and genuine challenge, and you only get a few hours of sleep every day, if that. Right. Yeah. There, there will be no weather conditions that stop the ride, uh, no matter what they what they might be. Uh, our intention is to ride till. Approximately, you know, one in the morning, uh, get off the bike, you know, be back on the bike, you know, sleep for, you know, two to three hours, be back on the bike at 4 a.m. Uh, 
and you know ride through the morning hours. That's why it's so important to have the van behind me at night because when I'm night riding, they're they're my lights for me to see. Uh, and then we'll ride throughout the day till till one in the morning, um, and that's that is our plan uh, right now to pretty much cross the country. Of course, we'll have to be dealing with weather conditions, and there's times weather will dictate us us changing our schedule. But other than that, that is that is pretty much what we'll need to do to reach our goal. And what are you going to be feeding your body during this race? Well, we a lot, to be quite honest. I'll burn, <laughs> I'll burn approximately 10,000 calories a day. So Whoa. the good news for all of us who love to eat is we can eat basically anything we want to eat. Uh, but I, I do drink a, a, a drink in my bottles that um, is a carbohydrate protein mix. But I'll drink a, and eat a lot of everything from peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to um, you know, to cookies, to milkshakes, to grilled chicken sandwiches. Ideally, is um, I want to do all my eating on the bike uh, while we're going down the road. Everything will be handed out the window to me. Oh. Uh, so ideally, I'll be eating. You know, breakfast will be you know Carnation Instant Breakfast out of a bottle on the bike. Uh, and uh, so, um, yes, that most of virtually all of my nutrition and hydration will come while I'm moving down the road. Hydration is a big thing um, of where I'll need to be consuming about 40 ounces, uh, 40 to 50 ounces, especially in the heat uh, per hour. Oh, right. You're going to have to be drinking a lot, aren't you? Right. So dehydration as well as caloric deprivation is are probably two of the biggest um, things that can, can slow you down or stop you from the race. Now, if something happens to the bike, uh, do you have a bike backup? We have two bikes. Yeah, we have three bikes, spare parts. Uh, just like if anybody's ever seen the Tour de France, if I have a flat tire, they'll just pull one wheel off and put another wheel on, and I will continue down the road, and one of the crew members will change the tire. Uh, but, yes, I have three bikes um, all equipped, so if I have mechanical problems, we grab another bike and, and, and I continue on. Gee. Now, you've been doing this some, of course, but how did you learn how to how to organize all this? Uh Basically, Mark and I have, that's what we've been working on for, for the last, you know, six to eight months of reading everything we could read. Race Across America does provide a clinic for crew members to go to, um, and we've monitored what others have done, and a lot of it has just been by practice, by us just going out and riding two- and three-day simulation events uh, and seeing what works for us and, and what doesn't. That's amazing. So uh, some of the people who uh, have perhaps put in a lottery uh, for you on this race are probably wondering how long it's going to take you uh, to finish. Mm -hmm. Uh, This may not be a question I should ask, but what's your bet? How how long do you think it's going to take you to finish? Well, I'd I'd be happy with 11 days, uh, and our stretch goal is 10 days, uh, which would be uh, 300 miles a day. that would be that would be a stretch and that, you know to to get there but that would that is our stretch goal is to make it in 10 days and once you finish and once you arrive in Annapolis so what's going to be the celebration <laughs> uh we'll probably pop a cork uh and just relax uh this is such a, an emotional time you know my boys I have two sons and my wife is on my crew she is uh, a cancer survivor that has uh, been treated at the Cleveland Clinic, and she's my massage therapist. And, uh, you know, just a, a lot of friends and family bonding in Annapolis uh, for a little while to, to savor the moment. Uh, and, and, and hopefully at that time we'll be able to look back and say we compete, com- completed our ride and we completed our fundraising effort. And if that's the case, uh, we will have memories that we will share for the rest of our lives. Scott, I will do the best I can at Park recovery to alert people to your race as it's ongoing uh, so that we can uh, alert interest to let you know there's a lot of people behind you and with you at every mile that you ride and also uh, get up a lot of interest uh, so that people can uh, pour in tons of money to support the incredible work that uh, Dr. J. Alberts is doing at the Cleveland Clinic. And I, and I thank you so much for that. I thank you for allowing uh, Dr. Alberts and I to, to be on your program today and uh, you know, all the best to every person out there and every family member that's dealing with a, a Parkinson's patient uh, to realize that it's not a death sentence. There is hope, 
um, and with research like what Dr. Alberts is doing, uh, we can improve many people's quality of life. And, Dr. Alberts, I want to thank you for being with us today, too. All right. Thank you. We appreciate your uh, promotion of this event and our, and our work. You know, just a note, uh, you know, Scott's very humble, but uh, you know, he's going to have to consume over 400 bottles of water or some type of fluid during that week or those 10 days. And you just think about that, 400 bottles. That, that's just amazing. <laughs> that's incredible. I'm overwhelmed by his description of what he's doing myself. It's just absolutely miraculous. Miraculous. And that's what's happening at Parkinson's Recovery on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the men are handsome, all the women are smart, and all the women are loved. Know that you are on the road to recovery. Good day. Hello. Hello, Jay.